I know most of you have been around here long enough that you've heard many of my stories. My stories over the years tend to repeat at times. My children, when we, they were young, would complain that I was sharing the same stories over and over, and they're like, no, Dad, not another farm story. Or, no, Dad, not another work story. Well, my response was just, well, do you want me to do another kid story? Then they were happy with the other stories. Well, as most of you probably know, I, in high school, served as a student manager on the basketball team. In, in our town, basketball was the main sport, and yet my stature, which was even smaller than now, my, my stature combined with my skill set did not enable me to play basketball. So I coped with that limitation by being a student manager. I could connect to the sport and the team, a portion of the jobs I had as student manager was quite enjoyable. For many of the games, I ran a video camera and, and commentated into the camera on what was going on in the game so that then the team could review the game over the next week by, by watching it. This was back in the day when you were talking big reels to, with video cameras, so it was a big deal to be able to run one. I, I enjoyed that, but some of my duties were, were less enjoyable and, and certainly less noticeable. Uh, for example, at the end of the game, I and the other managers had to collect all of the, the, the um, warm-up jerseys that the team made left behind, some of them kind of sweaty by that point because the team had, the members had put them on and off, on and off, and they'd come in and out of the game. We also had to collect towels that they'd use to wipe their face when they were taken out of the game for a short time to give them a breather. They'd wipe their face on this towel and throw it aside. We had to collect those towels and then make sure they got washed before the next game. Many, many times I brought those towels home and, and had that duty of washing the towels, getting them ready for the next game. Not always glamorous, not always upfront things to, to, to be done, but still duties that, that, were, that were my contribution toward the team. Well, this morning, we're going to look at one of the duties we have as Christians, a, a duty that, that often is behind the scenes, it, is not what we might think of as, as glamorous. Maybe we don't even think of it as important as some of the other duties that, that are more upfront, like teaching, but it's an important duty nonetheless. In this letter that Paul wrote to the, the Colossians that we've been working our way through, he's continually instructed us that, that Christ is to be the center of our lives. We have this new life in Christ through our faith in, in him. We have new life, and, and, and he is the source of that life and is to be the focus of that life. He is to be in the center of things. Focusing on Christ, making our decisions based on, on his character and his instructions, that's how we are transformed. Our thinking is transformed, and then outwardly we become transformed. Over the past weeks, in, as we looked at chapter 3, Paul reminded us that this transformation that occurs within us and then flows out will affect everything that we interact with. He talked about the church. Our transformation with Christ being our focus transforms the church. There's a unity that's produced within the church. It transforms our homes because those closest to us will be affected by our transformation. Our, our homes, our, our family members. And, and then last week, we, we saw that also affects our work life. As, as we spend time with others, they will see Christ displayed through this gospel transformation of our own lives. Well, this week now, as we move into our verses, Paul is beginning to wrap up this letter. Still, this, 
this concern that Christ is the focus of our lives, that remains one of his primary concerns. As he wraps this letter up, as he closes it out, Paul will give us several final instructions. Well, actually, he gives them to the church in Colossae. We get them by extension 2,000 years later here. But he gives us, through this letter to the Colossians, a number of instructions that, that remind us that Christ is to be the center of our lives. And, and these instructions help us keep him there. They help us center him and, and then display him to those around us. The Colossians were to display Christ in the city they lived in. We are to do likewise. Now, this, this morning we're only looking at, at the first of these final instructions that Paul gives in, in the letter. And as you can gather from the title of the sermon, it's an instruction that has to do with prayer. Prayer. As believers in Jesus Christ, the instruction that Paul gives to the church in Colossae is is just as, as useful to us as it was for them. Remember, Paul assumes he's writing to believers. He explained what faith in Jesus Christ meant in the first chapter, that it meant we, it meant we believe that Christ died for our sins and in Christ we have new life when we trust his sacrifice on our behalf. If you're here this morning or you're listening to me online and you don't know what all that means, talk to me after the service. Let me share with you how you can know Christ. But by this point in Paul's letter, Paul is simply assuming that he's talking to Christians. And he instructs this church in Colossae about prayer. And he, he, from that instruction, what we learn is this truth. We persist in prayer so that we remain Christ-focused in life. As I said, prayer is that behind-the-scenes thing. We, we don't often show our prayer. But we persist in prayer so that we remain Christ-focused in life. Let's go ahead and read our verses this morning. We're picking up in verse 2 of Colossians chapter 4, based on the, the chapter divisions in our Bibles. Paul writes, devote yourself to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Now in these verses that that we just read, there is only one command, there's only one imperative, one instruction Devote. Devote yourselves to prayer. That's how the New American Standard translates it. Several other English versions translate it, continue in prayer. The the word that Paul uses in in the original language, it means to persevere in something. It's a straightforward command. It's persevere. Persevere in this activity of prayer. It's straightforward. Give constant attention to prayer. We, we should see prayer, as Paul is saying, essentially, as I titled the sermon, it's a duty. It's not an option for us. We're instructed to continually, habitually persist in prayer. It's not an option. It's not something we do when it's convenient. Yeah, I've got time on my scheduled day. It's not too full, so I'll spend some time in prayer. No, that's not what Paul means. When he says, persevere, devote, continually do this, it's not a wish that we are to obey God's word. It's a fact. We are to obey God's word. 
It's either obedience or disobedience. This is not something that a gifted few do. Those who are given the gift of prayer should pray. No, all believers are told to pray. We're either obedient or we're disobedient. Those are the only options we have. Now, before concluding that, that we're obedient, I say we've got two options, and you look back over your weeks that I prayed. I, I'll pat myself on the back. I prayed, and you know, before every meal, I thank God for that meal. That's not necessarily what Paul means when he says persevere in prayer. Maybe we prayed before we went to bed each night that God would give us a good night's sleep. That's not really persevering in prayer. That's not devoting ourselves to prayer, continuing in prayer. Paul's command means that prayer is a regular, ongoing part of our lives. He only gives this single command in these verses, but he still writes a whole lot more about prayer. As we work our way through the rest of the verses, we'll see that prayer, as I said, keeps Christ in the center of our lives. It helps us keep that focus that we need to have. That's why prayer is not an option for us as believers. Having Christ at the center of our lives is not optional, and prayer is one of the main tools that God has given us to keep him there. It's fundamental to our Christian lives. If we analyze our Christian life, and we look at ourselves and we determine, you know, sadly, as a Christian, I'm kind of weak in my Christian faith. We're not walking as we ought, if we come to that conclusion, well then, most likely, we're not praying as we ought. If we analyze our lives and we figure out that we're not walking the way we should walk, then chances are we are failing to devote ourselves to prayer. We persist in prayer so that we remain Christ-focused in life. Assuming that we are believers, as I, Paul, as I said, Paul's making that assumption. I'm making that assumption too. Assuming we're believers, we want to be Christ-focused. We want that because the indwelling spirit that we receive at the moment of salvation gives us this desire. So there's not even an option, do we want to be Christ-focused or not? If we believe in Christ, we want to be Christ-focused. We need persistent prayer. What does persistent prayer look like? Well, in the remainder of our verses, we can discover five points about persistent prayer. Five things that, that Paul includes in these verses that tells us, here's what persistent prayer looks like. Points that we need to include in our prayers so that we will remain Christ-focused in our lives. First point, persistent prayer requires alertness. Alertness. We see this point in verse 2, keeping alert in it, he says, or he writes. Well, certainly alertness means that we need to be physically alert to effectively pray, right? We, we can't fall asleep while we're praying. Many of us have probably had that experience. We're praying while we're in bed, and on occasions, I, I find myself doing that. If I have trouble sleeping at night, in the middle of the night, for some reason I happen to be awake, I start praying. Eventually, over time, my mind will drift off and I head off to sleep. Well, somewhere in that transition phase, I know my prayers become ineffective because my mind is no longer engaged. Similarly, our prayers are not effective if we allow our minds to drift 
whether it's to sleep or even drift off to other concerns. We, we probably have all had the experience where we, we pray and we ask God to help us accomplish something. And the moment we pray that our minds start going through the process of developing a task list. If I'm going to do what I just prayed for, I need to do this and this and this and this and this. And our minds have gone whew, right over to that task list development. Well, at that moment, we're probably no longer praying effectively, are we? Still, I think when Paul says keeping alert in it, he's talking about more than just physical, mental alertness. There's more to it than just this that's required for prayer. The, the word that Paul uses here for alertness, it, it's a word that frequently is used in the New Testament to, return, or to refer to the return of Christ. To look for Christ's coming. Be alert that he's coming again. For example, Matthew 24, 42, Jesus says, Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day the Lord is coming. Again, in Matthew 25, 13, Christ said, Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. If we spent time going through the other Gospels, we find repeats of that. Jesus saying similar things in other places. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 4, Paul writes in a context that is specifically talking about the Lord's return. He writes, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. We're to be looking for that. Peter uses the word in that sense. John uses that word in that sense. We can find this word alert used throughout the New Testament referring to the idea that we are to watch for Christ's return. That's probably what Paul is alluding to here. He's talking about prayer, so he does it quickly, but he's alluding to more than physical alertness. He's alluding to a mental alertness that's looking for Christ to come again. We pray through the completed crosswork of Christ, don't we? We go to God through the completed crosswork of Christ. What I mean by that is we cannot stand before holy God. When we go to prayer, we're entering God's presence. Spiritually, we go into the presence of holy God, and we cannot do that in our unrighteousness. Sin cannot enter the presence of God. But in faith, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we receive his holiness. It's imputed to our account. And God says he sees us through the holiness of Christ. So when we stand before God in prayer, it's the righteousness of Christ that stands there covering us. So we enter the presence of God in prayer through the cross work of Christ, that's completed. His righteousness applies to, applied to our account allows us to enter the presence of God. Yet we should also remember Christ's work is not totally finished. His cross work is finished. The satisfaction of our sins is finished. But Christ's work is not finished. He is coming again. Do you believe that? He is coming again. Are you looking forward to that? The imminence of his return, the idea that he could come at any moment, there is nothing left to happen before Christ returns, should be our constant mindset as we pray. And alertness for Christ's return should guide and influence what we pray about. If Christ is coming today... There are certain things I'll pray about and certain things that really don't matter that much. 
and alertness to his return should guide and influence what we pray about. A conscious consideration of his return is part of what it means to keep alert. A conscious consideration of Christ's return certainly helps us remain Christ-focused in our lives. We persist in prayer so that we remain Christ-focused in life. Point one, persistent prayer requires alertness. Point two, persistent prayer expresses thankfulness. Thankfulness. This aspect is simple to understand. Nonetheless, it remains critically important. Paul writes that we are to pray with thanksgiving, or as New American Standards applies, with the attitude of thanksgiving. That's the idea there. One of the basic challenges, as we've discussed throughout this series, is that we naturally incline to self-centeredness. We are self-centered creatures. Our sin nature, our old life, is all concerned about us. That's what we grew up with. That's what we know best. Us. We are concerned about us. By, by contrast, our new life, this, this new nature that we receive at salvation, this new life is centered on Christ. That's what our new life is concerned about. But the old life and the new life, they war for this attention. Even as the transformation is underway to eradicate that, that old life and, and to celebrate the new, we still have this old life that's there and we're prone to slip right back into it because it's a comfortable shoe. It fits perfectly. Well, our prayers can easily slip into self-centeredness as we ask for things that, that will make our lives better, easier, more convenient. An attitude of thanksgiving serves as a bulwark against these tendencies. We are Christians. We are undeserving sinners saved by unwanted grace through the unmerited sacrifice of our perfect Savior. That's who we are. Undeserving sinners saved by unwanted grace through the unmerited sacrifice of Christ. Isn't there something to be thankful for in all of that? We did nothing. Christ did it all. And God, the Holy God, imputed his righteousness to us through faith. Christ died because it was the will of the Father for him to do that and because of his great love for us. The Father loved us so much that he sent his son to do that sacrifice, to die. He loved us while we were completely unlovely. We were in absolute rebellion against him, shaking our fist in his face, saying, we want nothing to do with you, God. Undeserving sinners saved by unwanted grace through the unmerited sacrifice of our Savior. That's who we are. As we pray, we should always have a conscious reminder in this fact. We should have a consciousness of all that God has done for us through Christ. And that mindfulness should find expression in thankfulness. Over the years, as we've incorporated this prayer of praise, what, what Nino gave this morning, this prayer of praise into our service, 
I've had several men that I've asked to prepare that, that prayer tell me at one time or another how challenging they found that task to be, to prepare that prayer of praise. I, I asked them to prepare a prayer that, that is entirely given over to praising and thanking God for what he has done. The challenge is to refrain from asking God for anything. We're, we're so naturally inclined to ask God for stuff. The, these men have found that it's only when they stop and spend time preparing for the task that they realize how unnatural it is to exclusively thank God. Friends, all of us need to spend more time thinking about who God is and what he has done and thanking him for it. We need specifically select times when we limit our prayers to praise and thanksgiving. We also need to ensure that we wrap every one of our prayers in this attitude of thanksgiving for all that God has done and for who he is. Doing that forces Christ to the center of our minds. We persist in prayer so that we remain Christ-focused in life. Persistent prayer expresses thanksgiving. Number two. As we move our thoughts into verse 3 then, we find point number three. Point number three of persistent prayer. Persistent prayer extends outward. Outward. As I just said, we we naturally gravitate towards self-centeredness. We have no problems thinking about self. The the work that God has done in this world, however, is not centered on us. That, That may be a surprise to some of you, but it's not centered on you. Nor is God centering his work on me. God is centering his work on Christ. You and I are just bit players in what God is doing in Christ. That's not to minimize that God uses us, but we are not the center of the, of the program. Christ is the center. And God is using lots of people besides you and I to accomplish his work. Our prayers need to reflect that reality. In verse 3, Paul calls on the Colossians to pray for us. That includes at least him and Timothy, maybe some of the other people. If we move in this closing, we'll see Paul lists other assistants, people that are helping him in the ministry. It might include all of them, but at least Paul and Timothy, who, who wrote this letter together. Paul is working through people. People in, in various places to, to bring glory to his name and to, to magnify Christ. And Paul says this is happening through various places. Colossians pray for us. Pray for these people. Rather than limiting your prayers to your own concern, pray for us too. Need I point out that we need to do likewise? God is working in and through people all around the world to magnify Jesus Christ. Several of those people, as I mentioned earlier, are missionaries. Next step pregnancy that we pray for. Most weeks as I pray, I try to include our missionaries. Some weeks I get up here and realize I forgot to write down which missionary we're featuring that week, but we tried to include our prayer for our missionaries as we pray together as a church. But how about during the week? Are you praying for our missionaries during the week? After all, our missionaries do not just serve Christ on Sunday. They face challenges and struggles and in some places even opposition and oppression Monday through Saturday as well. 
Let's pray for our missionaries. They may even face danger like Paul did. Paul wrote this letter while he was sitting in a prison in Rome because of the gospel. Our missionaries need our regular prayer. Of course, our outward extension of our prayers do not need to be exclusively for our missionaries. We, we have friends and family members who are facing situations that could benefit from our prayers. This morning, I mentioned Margaret Udo. She could benefit from our prayers. After all, God is clear in his word that our prayers are the means by which he accomplishes his will. James 4.2 tells us that, that you do not have because you do not ask. When you pray, it helps. God somehow determined that our prayers would move him to accomplish his predetermined plan. I don't know how that works. God determined before the foundation of the world what was going to occur, but he says our prayers are the means to move him to do what he planned to do. We'll let God put together how all that comes together. He tells us that's how it is, and I trust him. In other words, prayers matter. Our prayers move the sovereign God of the universe, the one who spoke all things into existence. Our prayers move him to act. Still, I would suggest one of the greatest benefits of praying for others, not just the fact that it moves God to act on their behalf, one of the greatest benefits of extending our prayers outward is, again, this helps us re to remain Christ-focused. As we think of others, we think of the way Christ is working in and through them. We pray that Christ would be magnified in their lives, that Christ would transform them to be more like him. Our prayers naturally for others lead into Christ-centeredness. These petitions remind us that Christ is the center of things, not ourselves. After all, the reason I'm praying for most of these people is because I'm linked to them through Christ. We persist in prayer so that we remain Christ-focused in life. Persistent prayer extends outward, number three. Point four, as we move on, persistent prayer prioritizes gospel efforts. Prioritizes gospel efforts. Having asked the, the Colossians pray for him, Paul focuses their prayer. He focuses in on the gospel. He wants them to pray that God would open up for us a door for the word. And then he goes on to clarify that the word is the mystery of Christ. Well, chapter 1, I know that's several months back in, in our series here, but chapter 1, Paul clarified already that the mystery of Christ is the gospel message. It's the gospel of salvation. It's specifically the fact that the gospel is equally available to Gentile and Jews. That's the mystery, that God is saving all people through the message of Jesus Christ. Now Paul says specifically, church, Colossians, pray. Pray that I and Timothy, that we would have opportunities to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the people in Rome. Think about it. I mentioned Paul's under house arrest. He cannot leave his home. He's imprisoned. His imprisonment was house arrest, he, so it wasn't in a dungeon at least, but he was in prison. He was restricted. He could not go anywhere. He could not go to the marketplace and share Christ like he did in Corinth. He could not go to the Agora, the, the, the gathering place in the city center, as he did in Athens. 
He could not even go out to the river and find another Lydia like he did in Philippi. He couldn't go anywhere. All Paul could do was sit in his home and hope that someone might come to him. Someone to whom he could then share Christ. And yet sharing the gospel is what he longed to do. His arrest didn't change that at all. That was still the purpose for which he's here. He is a Christian. He's here to display Christ. So he asked the church of Colossians in Colossae there to pray that, that he might find opportunities opening up in his life that allowed him to share Christ with others. When we pray that the God grant gospel opportunities, that, that Christ becomes more and more known, as we pray that, when we pray that, I guarantee Christ will become more central in our lives too. After all, how can we pray that, that Christ becomes more well-known without thinking about Christ more and more ourselves? The connection to prioritizing gospel efforts and, and remaining Christ-focused, that's not hard to see. The challenge comes when we truly assess our own prayers, when we assess our gospel effort priority in our own prayer life. That's where the challenge comes. We spend an awful lot of our time in prayer, large percentages of the time we spend in prayer, asking God to alleviate challenging circumstances rather than grant gospel opportunities. Someone has cancer. We pray that the treatments will remove cancer. Someone loses their job. We pray that they will quickly find a new job. Someone faces surgery. We pray that the surgery will be successful and they'll recover quickly. I am not going to say that we should fail to pray for those trying circumstances that, that people face. I, I don't think it's wrong to pray for those things. Where the problem lies is that too often we prioritize these temporal outcomes over gospel efforts. Rarely do we pray that the cancer or the job loss or the surgery would open doors for gospel conversations. That because of this event, new people would be confronted with the gospel. Seldom do we ask others to pray that our trying circumstances, things that we have in our lives, that, that those would give us gospel opportunities. Never. Well, that might be a slight overstatement, but I'm going to use it anyway. Never do we pray that we might stay in the difficult situation if it means that God will use that situation to save someone. If you pray that way, come correct me afterwards. Our prayers reveal our priorities. I challenge you to find anywhere in this letter that we're studying, and we've spent months studying it now, find anywhere in this letter, I challenge you, to find a spot where Paul asks the Colossians to pray that he would be released from prison. His freedom, his ease of life, that, that is not his priority. Is it any wonder to, 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 that, that we struggle, is it any wonder that we struggle to live Christ-focused lives when our prayers reveal such a self-centered priority? We persist in prayer so that we remain Christ-focused in life. Persistent prayer prioritizes gospel efforts. 
Lastly, point five, five. Persistent prayer requests divine aid. Requests divine aid. It is not wrong to ask God for things. Paul's prayer request in in verse 4 is that he may make it, that's the gospel, clear in the way that I ought to speak. Paul says, ask for this. Ask God to, to help this. Now, translating Paul's words the way the New American Standard does it, that, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak, that, that may actually downplay the emphasis that, that Paul himself puts into the prayer. The, the word that, that we have translated as ought, that, that's a word that means it is necessary. Paul understands he has a divine compulsion a divine requirement, a divine compulsion, as, as one commentator expressed it, to, to communicate the wonders of Christ to anyone who will listen. It's necessary. It's not just that he ought to do it. It's necessary. It's a must. In fact, that the word that, that Paul tra- ha- uses that we have translated, make it clear, it's a word that Paul oftentimes just uses for divine revelation. He is to reveal what God has revealed. God has revealed Christ. Christ is a manifestation of God. Paul's job now is to reveal what God has revealed, and, and it's necessary that he does so. Yet, he cannot do that in his own strength. That's why he asks for prayer. He needs God to enable him, to, to aid his efforts, to, to do what God has required him to do. God is the one that made this necessary. But he needs God to enable him to do it. One of the beautiful things about God is that God not only gives us responsibilities, God enables us to do what he gives us to do. He gives us the ability to fulfill our responsibilities. God expects us to express our dependence on him. God gives us the ability but he expects us to ask for it. That's why Paul enlists the the Colossians' aid to to solicit God's aid. Colossians, pray for me that God would enable me. Well, we need to follow this model as well. There are lots of things that that God requires us to do as his children, responsibilities that, that we have. God promises to enable us to do these things. We do not have to do it through our own power. We do it through the power of the Spirit empowering us. Yet, we are to solicit His divine aid through prayer to receive that enablement. When you pray, are you simply asking God to do things? Or do you request that God would aid you in the things He's given you to do? There is a difference there. God, take care of something. Do this thing over here. That's different from saying, God, give me the strength to do what you've asked me to do over here. Which way are you praying? When you pray, are you simply asking God to do things or to help you do things? Like, like Paul, there are necessary things for us to do. Sharing Christ with the lost, that's, that's one of those things. We've been given that responsibility. But it's not the only thing. There's, there's all the one another obligations we have to each other. As we sit here together, the scripture is filled with things that we are to do for one another. We need God to enable that. None of them come natural. After all, why do I want to encourage someone who's irritated me this week? 
fair yet. Why do I want to forgive someone who's offended me? Because God tells us to. We need God's enablement for that. There's the renewing of our mind through the working of the word. That's a duty that we have. We are to renew our mind through the working of the word. But do you ever find it difficult to spend time reading the Bible? We need God's enablement. We have a lot of things to do, and all of them require divine aid because they're spiritual. The question is whether our prayers reflect that need. Are we requesting divine aid for ourselves and for others? Because every other person in our church needs that aid as well. Remember the the parable of the widow and the judge in, in Luke 18? That parable's there, Jesus gives it to teach that God wants us to cry out to him day and night, to ask persistently. The judge grants the widow's request because she just won't leave him alone. And we're to pray likewise. Let's make sure that our continual cries to God include requests for his divine aid. We persist in prayer so that we remain Christ-focused in life. Persistent prayers, number five, request divine aid. The duty of prayer. In some ways, it's like that duty I had as a student manager for the basketball team in, in high school. It's not always glamorous, often not even noticeable. It's behind the scenes, but it's a duty. It's an, a responsibility God has given us. It's a duty we have as believers. In, in fact, as we've seen here in this passage, it's a critical duty. It's something we must do to remain Christ-centered. It's a duty in which we must persist. We persist in prayer so that we remain Christ-focused in life. As we've looked at Paul's command to the Colossians to persist in prayer, he's given us five points that help us see how we are to persist in prayer. Five points that all serve to keep us Christ-centered in life. Number one, persistent prayer requires alertness. Number two, it expresses thankfulness. Number three, it extends outward. Number four, it prioritizes gospel efforts. And number five, it requests divine aid. All five of these work together to help us stay Christ-focused. We persist in prayer so that we remain Christ-focused in life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these verses this morning that show us the, the importance of prayer. Show us the obligation that we have, the the responsibility you've given us, the command to be persistent, to persevere in our prayer, to devote ourselves to it, to do it continually. But Father, you also instruct us, showing us how and why we should do that. Father, may we see the connection between our prayers and our Christ-centeredness. And may we invest more and more of our time in prayer. May we invest in it considering what you've taught us here today so that our prayers are indeed Christ-centered and not just another means of revealing our self-centeredness. May we persist in prayer so that Christ is magnified in our lives. We pray this in his name. Amen.